the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. again. It's July 15, 2018. This is Martin Sobretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation, and we are here today for some more Chalcedon Q&A and a little meat of the word for our supporters and followers. And just those who are curious. Hey, Jessica Lynn, good to have you here today. And let's see, uh, Bill Evans is watching. Bill, I did get that uh, email from you, so that's good. Uh, we're waiting for, uh, and Andrea's with us, and very shortly we'll have noticed that we are plugged in to the calcedon.edu website, which means that this video can be viewed both live on Facebook or also directly on the website. Uh, so uh, it takes a moment for them to go ahead and get us connected, and once we're connected, then we can start with the questions. And I received one, two, three, four, five, six, seven questions in advance, and then we'll take live questions uh, from folks out there who are listening in. Uh, so as soon as I get the notice from Andrea, we are going to move forward. Hi, Joe. Good to have you with us, too, today. Um, I hope everyone's doing well in the middle of summer. And Darlene is here. It's good to have uh, the sermon rolling again. Uh, Mark is doing a fantastic job on uh, uh, those Sunday sermons, working through the uh, Synoptic Gospels. Also, a reminder, uh, we have a Book of the Month Club coming up on August 6th, where I'll be discussing the mythology of science. Dr. Rashtuni's book from 1965, which, interestingly enough, is still timely today. We see that we're good to go, according to Calcedon Foundation. So with that uh, one notice, I'm sure Ground Control will go ahead and put up the link for people to sign up for the uh, Book of the Month Club discussion. And uh, there's still time to read the book. It's not that thick a book. Now, Dr. Rashtuni has written very thick books, and he's also written some little tiny ones. And this one is uh, a pretty easy read, all things considered. Mythology of Science. Boy. The two priesthoods butting heads together there for short. So the first question that came in, when dealing with those in one's family who were raised in the faith but who have fallen away, there is a tendency to be harsher on them than others you meet with no history attached to your interactions with them. Can you comment on this phenomenon and offer some suggestions as to how to effectively maneuver through these waters? And difficult waters they are. So that is true. It's um, familiarity breeds contempt is a f fundamental problem here, and we have an interesting model of, of behavior uh, with respect to Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau and Darley was a profane man who despised his godly birthright, and yet when they reunited after the you know, decade and a half apart, uh, there was joy involved in it. There was. In other words, there are certain bonds that, despite the fact of the uh, kingdom of God and their being very different in their approach to it, those bonds were still meaningful to them and meant something to them in the family. Now, Christ warns us of one thing, right? We're not to love you know, father or mother or brother more than God. But nonetheless, that doesn't mean that uh, we don't want to continue to reach out to them 
And I am certain that Jacob continued to be a good example um, to Esau uh, when those families were reunited with tears and, and weeping on each other's shoulders and things like that. But it is a difficult thing because we have to remember that the Church of Christ is the only army that tends to shoot its own wounded. Uh, and so it's a difficult matter because sometimes it's a very willful thing, and then we have to take into account what the Scripture calls the deceitfulness of sin. How did someone who started off on apparently a right path descend into apostasy? Uh, and is that a permanent apostasy, or are they going to be like the prodigal son and come back uh, home, as it were? And I, I was commenting a little bit, uh, doing a little research on this phrase, the deceitfulness of sin, the fact that it seduces us away uh, from from God and from the good things of God, and where then we turn our back on Him and on God's kingdom and on God's justice and righteousness and do things our own way. So, that phrase, which is used in Hebrews three thirteen, is interesting for several reasons. One, the uh, notion of deceitfulness, deceit, really, uh, it's the word apate. It's not like agape, which is a good thing. It's apate. And uh, like most words in Greek, the A in front is the negative, like uh, atheist or something like that, or amoral, no morality, uh, no, th no God. Uh, so uh, what's pate mean? Uh, patos is a beaten path, a, uh, a road that you're supposed to be on. So it means that uh, deceit is to pull you off the beaten path, a known safe road, the road, the highway of righteousness, I would call it appealing to Isaiah 35, 8. And that is what uh, the deceitfulness of sin is. And so there's a, the instruction there is to continue to exhort each other continually so that we don't have that hardening that uh, is caused by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, that word hardening, we actually use that term scleroso um, in words like atherosclerosis, arteriosclerosis, the hardening of the arteries. Well, here you have what cardiosclerosis, hardening of the heart, not the physical heart, but the spiritual heart of a man. And that's what we want to overcome with the exhortations while we still can, they still have an effect. Uh, and we don't know what kind of um, trajectory any given individual will be. Sometimes they come way back way later uh, when God comes knocking, if you will, at the door and, and effectively changes them. So I would say that rather than burning bridges, it is probably advisable to try to maintain the bridge. In, in fact, even build it back up where possible. This is kind of what Jacob was doing when he was traveling toward Esau, knowing there was likely to be trouble. And as a consequence of that, he started sending uh, gifts, <laughs> um, offerings, if you will, to his brother to try to you know, make him think twice about killing him and breaking his neck. Uh, and all this was good. And it turned out that, uh, interestingly enough, Esau did not really want all these things. He says, look, I have enough. So for all his faults, Esau did not have a covetous bone in his body. He had other problems, but covetousness was not one of them, uh, interestingly enough. So what about this uh, deceitfulness is thin that would cause, say, a family member to um, move away from the faith? Uh, it's interesting some of the things that can deceive us. Uh, Luther pointed out that our own sense of self-righteousness can get in the way. That can just as easily harden us uh, with the deceitfulness of sin because it seduces us uh, and turns something that would normally be a pretty good thing into a bad thing. He appeals to the passage in uh, Gospel of John 5.44 at the healing of Bethesda. He says, how can you believe who give glory one to another? So when these men 
and women are giving glory to one another for how great they are and how uh, orthodox and right they are and, and holy, uh, it's impossible for them to believe. And so one of the things that uh, often happens when someone departs from the faith is that they believe that they, they don't need God, uh, the, he doesn't exist, uh, and they, they have a comes down, comes down to crisis, and uh, they set in motion their, uh, and they move against God in their lives, and they attempt to eject him, which is impossible because, of course, he's he's the hound that uh, never uh, hound of heaven that will will hound you down. So I think the the um, keeping the bridges open and so that it's not so that that it, it, it's a tough question, obviously, because there's emotions that are built into this. Uh, a father and a mother uh, obviously are grieved when a child who they raised in the faith moves away from the faith. Uh, what did we do wrong? What can we do to bring them back? Things like that. And therefore, it sets in motion uh, all sorts of very powerful things that, that sway us mentally. So then we need to just stick with the scripture and say, okay, they're part of our mission field again. And I want to move forward in terms of that. Now, there's a, something lurking in the background that needs to be mentioned, is if they, they were baptized, uh, and particularly if they were baptized very, very young as an infant, uh, that actually weighs against them. They would have been better off never having been baptized and having God's mark of ownership and covenant um, participation on them uh, than to fall away uh, in a baptized state. So uh, at this point, they sin against better knowledge, as the Bible says. And so sometimes God makes use of that. And when these men and women do later repent, and many of them do, though not, it's no guarantee, uh, they will make note of the fact that God made good the work that was started in them. Ultimately, he finished, but there was a big, terrible dip in it, and they realized what that dip meant. I just uh, encountered in the last two days, uh, noticed someone tagged me on Facebook about a fascinating testimony by a gentleman who um, had fallen away and actually got to the point where the Word of God itself was a dangerous emotional trigger, a traumatic trigger for him. He could not deal with God through the Bible because the Bible had been used unlawfully against him, both for, first by cults and then by fundamentalists. And so everything that was coming out of the Bible was a source of pain and control and oppression and tyranny in his because it was used wrongly. It was used uh, literally as a Bible-beating situation. And uh, it, through God's mercies, uh, he finally has got to the point where he was able then to put an order in for a Thompson Chain Reference Bible uh, to open finally and get back to, to God himself and his word rather than having it simply this personal relationship with God. But I think i got to stay away from his word because I read some of it and it brings back all these horrible things. So God is able to, even to heal that terrible situation where someone is in the boat where uh, God's own word uh, is is a hazard in this. So you see, it says in Scripture that the entering in of your word bringeth light, but the misuse of his word, I don't think that's uh, any true anymore at that point. And so uh, he has to uh, come to the point where he segregates between abuse of the word and the word itself. You know, all sorts of things were made good at the beginning, and all things were made bad uh, by man. God made man upright, but man sought out many devices, the Ecclesiastes tells us, and that's the state we had. So, again, general advice, and of course individual counseling might vary, depends on the level of high-handedness in the of departure from the faith and how we want to work with family members to recover them. Uh, it's a very, very difficult thing, to say the least. 
And the question is, how do we effectively maneuver? I think we can faithfully maneuver, but effectiveness is up to God, ultimately. Should our approach to non-believers be the same or different to those in antinomian churches? So the first point to make about an antinomian church is, I think, an idea we can glean from Matthew 5.19. Whosoever shall loosen even the least of these commandments and teach men so shall be least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So by this criterion, we would say that an antinomian is not is a Christian, but he is least in the kingdom of God. He is basically making him give what we call the uh, the consolation prize. He's the lowest dead. He's the pawn on the board. He's not a knight. He's not the rook. He's not the queen or king. He's chosen to be the disposable pawn, if you will. Now, I don't like using these analogies because all analogies are faulty. But the idea is when Jesus says they are least in the kingdom of heaven, he's trying to alert us to something, that your, our orientation to the law of God determines our status as Christians. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but it does determine your status because it shows how much you truly love the law of God and how much you're letting God shape your walk. And if that's a minimal, bare minimum, you know, technically, if you get a D minus, you pass the course. It's an F to fail. <laughs> so you could get D minuses all the way across high school and you get your graduate, your, your certificate. You know, I guess that has <laughs> become less and less meaningful every single year in a public school. But nonetheless, the, the truth is, do we want to be D minus Christians or strive for something better where we can not just um, return to God what he gave us in the first place, but multiply five talents into 10 or 10 talents into 20. So we exhort one another to uh, greater works. In fact, Paul makes the one comment that the Corinthians, I believe it was, were doing even, or one of the Philippians, one of them was uh, doing more than their strength even allowed to do. So there's a lot in, in the sense in which in the spiritual realm, uh, when we do battle, we really do want to move mountains in, in, in a spiritual sense. So uh, I would say there's a distinction between a non-believer who is not in God's kingdom Certainly not yet. He, he might, in fact, be elect and doesn't know it yet. You don't know it. Uh, but God knows. And your mission is, therefore, to proclaim with testimony the word of God to him uh, versus the antinomian where they may be saved, but they have been been fed a, a load of goods by their pastors and their teachers which have made them least in the kingdom of heaven, which have made them D-minus students of God, rather than being workmen approved, not ashamed, they kind of have a level of shame <laughs> because just barely sliding by. And this bunny slope Christianity is not going to be effective in a time of war as we have against humanism today. Rather, we need men who are there and women who have their uh, loins girded for battle. Uh, they need to be uh, strong in the word and anchored in the rock and not playing on the sand all the time. It's just not going to get you where we need to go ultimately. So. I do believe that we need to make a distinction between them. We need to continue to reach out to the antinomian Christian uh, because they are men and women who are, are in a position to do better than they are and the kingdom could, do, could use them putting their full weight into the project of uh, God's kingdom uh, continuing to grow in the world as opposed to a holding pattern or retreating. Well, God forbid that that should happen, but people sometimes counsel retreat as if it's a sign of faithfulness. Jesus told us that we know people by their fruits. How can you identify the difference between someone taught incorrectly and those who have no interest in doing things God's way? I guess the first thing we would say is that if someone was taught incorrectly, they would presumably respond to uh, correction. 
you say, let's take a look at those scriptures now. If they're totally closed-minded, oh, no, 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 you're not going to tell me anything. Uh, at that point, we know that they're so committed to a fraudulent uh, reading of scripture uh, that it's going to be very, very difficult to move them off. Now, let's make a distinction. It's important. I prefer someone who has a conviction, even if he's in the wrong place with his conviction, than someone who's loosey-goosey and all over the map. You don't want to be easily swayed by every wind of doctrine. So it's better for me that if, I, if it takes me half a year of talking to someone to move him in his position versus, oh, do you consider this scripture? Oh, right, you got it. I'm going to change my position now. Thank God. And, then, of course, the next day, someone else comes up and pushes him back where he was or in a worse place. All right, it's not enough just to clean house. We need to get people anchored properly. So I will take a man who's going to live by his convictions and work with his convictions. Some of the strongest reconstructionists I know fought it tooth and nail for years before they decided, I don't see things right. And uh, they saw that it was, there was patience involved. They saw the kingdom of God actually flowering and burgeoning in small ways where they could identify it, like with the homeschooling movement, things like that makes a difference, and people respond to that positively. So, uh, obviously, if someone, the other person, is, has no interest in doing things God's way, if they're not interested, then, in what God's way says, what God's word, light, light that God's word would shed on matter A, B, or C. So, that would be the difference, is someone who is taught incorrectly, in principle, can be moved, because he was taught one way, he can certainly find a better place. And most of us have come to the position we're in today, having migrated a very interesting, usually convoluted route to get here. Very few people, they're blessed if they are, of course, if they say, well, I was born into a Reconstructionist family and never know anything different, and I grew up with it, and boy, am I headed 900 miles an hour uh, into kingdom building with my family to propagate this to the next generation and the generation after that. That's a wonderful thing. But most of us might start off uh, with the Hal Lindsey book in our uh, teen years and then migrate to amillennialism, and make uh, different moves in the in the uh, baptism dis area of dispute, and, and then finally land where we are. And today, we, we, we don't know for an absolute fact that where we landed today is where we're going to ultimately end up. After all, the Puritans, who knew much better than we did, would always say, we're going to follow what we understand the Word of God says, or as He may shine further light upon it. So they refused to block out additional light from God on His Word to give us a better interpretation of it, a better knowledge of it, a better application of God's word. So the person who has merely been instructed wrong can normally be corrected. Now, I'm assuming we're talking not about cults who say, uh, hold that Jesus was a created being, something false like that. Uh, it, it would be, uh, we're talking about Christians who uh, are in the general pool of those who hold to the inerrancy of scripture, uh, the canon canonicity of the Old and New Testaments alone, and to the basic cardinal doctrines. Uh, those people in other areas ought to, in principle, be reachable. And if not, then you have to do what Warfield did with Strong when they debated baptism. It says that one of us, each of us should regard the other as mistaken, but not withhold the right hand of fellowship on account of this issue. So, uh, because God's going to be looking at how are you disagreeing with one another. Is it, are you disagreeing agreeably, or are you uh, backbiting one another? Hey, Joe, greetings from Idaho, and well, greetings from Georgetown, Texas, from up down here. Hope the weather's good up there. You know, they make a big deal here in every place that you go uh, where they have custom uh, burgers, and uh, they always say, we have only Idaho potatoes here. So it's a big deal in Texas that you're not getting your potatoes from anywhere but Idaho. 
it, it, that's your selling point, and it works works well. <laughs> Our neck of the woods. Rory Fry asked a question, and I'll get to two or three from Douglas Long. Rory, who's not able to, I believe, to be listening live, but he'll catch this when he uh, hears the uh, recording. If someone were interested in republishing an older title, one in the public domain, what steps should they take? How would they go about doing this? Well, I think the first thing you need to do is make sure that no one else has got the plan or has already done it. Now, the second thing to consider is if it's been done, uh, see what the quality is. One of the most common things to see is terrible, awfully, t uh, miserably formatted works of uh, books. And you look at them and say, how do they... How are they charged this on Amazon or whatever the the format is? It is it does no one any favors to produce a book that looks terrible. Dr. Gary North eyes would say never do anything second rate in the name of Jesus, and I think this has to be the case. So if you're going to do like a Kindle version in an ebook, make sure it's readable, etc. Just yesterday I was reading a book reviews on Amazon for uh, one of the more modern translations of Don Quixote. And the vast majority of negative reviews said it's all done in six-point type. We can't read it, and it's blurry. And you can and then they took, took some pictures of the pages and say so you can see the middle page is tilted, and this page is that way, and it's a disaster. I can't read it. So I want to send it back. So don't do anything second-rate if you're going to publish it. Do something like um, the Kyle Shepherd's press has done, Visionarian Press, with their reprint of A. W. Pink's Sovereignty of God. Uh, there, they went bent over backwards to provide new indices, uh, very smart, easy-to-read formatting, quality paper, quality binding, uh, and then you can put that out and, 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 and say this is Christian craftsmanship at its best. Also, when you're picking something up out of the public domain, uh, make sure it's a work of uh, value so that uh, you're not propagating something junky, as they would say, but rather uh, something that uh, builds on a legacy that has legs to it. Uh, so, yeah, content is important, and then if it's worthwhile content, give it a worthwhile format. Uh, the other steps, of course, is that uh, if you're going to anthologize something, then you have some opportunities to apply an ISBN number, a separate ISBN, International Standard Book Numbering, uh, for that anthology in the form it takes if these are various pieces that are in the public domain. Each anthology can therefore exist with its own protections as an anthology. So there's there's little tr publishing tricks that in America you can get away with. If you're catching this from overseas, the rules might be a little different. But in any event, we do like. To, I uh, I am so blessed to know that some of the things that I thought were almost impossible to find uh, are now being reprinted. Uh, some very well. Some they just will grab an old copy of the book, tear it into pieces, uh, and use the existing photolithography and essentially copy it, but in high quality. Uh, so anything that's messed up in the original is reflected in the copy. But if they do a good job, usually you can read it. I can read Hengstenberg's uh, Commentaries and Revelation from Whipfenstock very easily in the format they have. But it has not been retypeset. They just want to use the existing typeset format and going through all the trouble of having to retypeset all that Greek and all that Latin and all that Aramaic and the Arabic that he puts in there and uh, the Hebrew and then the Latin. <laughs> and it's full of it. Uh, and, and, and so it's a tour de force for typesetters. The only thing worse is complex mathematics typesetting that. So rather than retypeset all of this, these older commentaries are simply rephotolithographed and brought back to life. If you have something that's out of print and in the public domain, 
and you believe that the Christian Church will be blessed by it, by all means, go for it. You can certainly uh, reach us at Chalcedon for additional advice, uh, and we can certainly point you to folks that could assist you with pulling that off on the technical front. And we have three final questions from Doug Long. Douglas Long writes, and he starts with this uh, premise. For the series of questions on application, oh, sorry, for the series of questions on application of this broad concept. And here's the, the concept, the starting point. Since the power of the cross is the removal of the accountability of sin through our faith and belief, which leads to repentance and a response towards repentance through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then questions one, two, three, based on this since. Since this is so, then these three questions follow. First question. Question, is there a level or length of denial of responsiveness toward continued disobedience that we are to see as a false faith or a dead faith? In other words, how much um, sin and rebellion do we need to see before we say, this isn't the case of a Christian taking a misstep. This is someone who's not a Christian. It's a dead faith or a false faith. It's not a crippled faith. It's not a weak faith. It's, it's not a troubled faith. Rather, it's a dead faith. And so how much is it? It's very, very hard to quantify this thing uh, because we've seen examples in our own lifetime and within the last week of people that would, we would have been solidly convinced they were gone. They were definitely never a Christian and never going to be a Christian based on their attitude because they had essentially pushed the Word of God, say, out of their lives entirely with no intention of allowing it back in. But that changed. So you, it's a very difficult thing to argue which direction we go with this. Hey, Ron, good to have you here. So uh, the upshot is we can know the fruits of things and draw conclusions on that. And I believe if you are pastoring someone who's in this boat, then you as a spiritual pastor need to deal with what is actually mentioned there in Hebrews 3.13. Because when we talked about hardening due to the deceitfulness of sin, that's the starting or the end of the sentence. The beginning of the sentence talks about you know, exhorting one another uh, while the day is still called today, still so we'll have opportunity to prevent this kind of thing from going on. And after that, of course, it's we move from prevention to remediation, to try to uh, pull someone back from the precipice of sin, not to allow sin on their heads, to warn them. But that is the exhortation process, if it fails of its purpose, which is to prevent the collapse into the deceitfulness and hardening of sin. The question is, how hardened is somebody? And we don't have a scale. We don't have a sclerometer to determine how sclerosis, sclerotic someone's heart or soul is. God sees the heart. We don't. So one of the best ways that we can break them down, if you will, is to appeal to God to work on their heart. Because God is the true heart surgeon in all of this. We're not. We attempt to do, become heart surgeons. We'll fail miserably and probably botch the job. Malpractice, if you will. Uh, some insights into this come in with uh, the book, The Cure of Souls, uh, which we did a Book of the Month Club just a few months back on. And if you don't have that book, it'd be a good one to, to deal with. Uh, and I'm going to respond a little bit more because he's going to get into this third question, stuff that kind of will link in with what the first question says. So if you say, Martin, you're missing a couple of points that you should raise, I will probably raise them after I deal with the other two. He broke his question down to three different sub-questions. So be patient with me. And then you can jump all over me if I've missed something important by the time we get to the third point. Um, obviously, there's a point where uh, you, you, if you, someone's trying to take seriously Martin Luther's claim, it doesn't matter if I commit adultery and murder a hundred times a day, uh, that can't separate me from the love of Christ. And as Worcester, he said, 
with saints like this who need sinners if you're murdering every hundred times every day. So uh, obviously there's some kind of line has been crossed there, but Luther was, as usual, going for a rhetorical effect. And sometimes we don't catch that. Or we're very literal with him and, and, give, and cut him no slack, which is a common thing today. When are we to be wary of the fruit of the false doctrine that teaches that you can live however you want, you're okay just as you are, so long as you believe that Christ was the Son of God and died for your sins? In other words, how wary should we be of the false doctrine of easy believism? Just believe in Christ and then the life doesn't have to follow. Uh, I remember John Blanchard wrote a fascinating little, it was John, uh, book that appeared in the late 70s, uh, What Shall We Do with the Carnal Christian? The whole doctrine of a carnal Christian uh, kind of erupted out of evangelicalism as a justification saying, well, there's, there's, there's the strong Christian, there's the unbeliever in between is the carnal Christian who is not walking according to the way, but he has Christ. So uh, this is a very problematic thing because repentance uh, literally is, we talked about it last week, metanoia. It is a change, a transformation of the, the noise, the mind. So the, if and a change in direction is a consequence, and if we're not changing direction, we have a fundamental problem, is that repentance isn't present. By definition, it's not. There is no change, either the heart or the mind or the direction, the, the, um, uh, the thoughts and the contentions of the hearts are all still pointed toward self-fulfillment and making yourself your own God. So that's the danger, is that there is no true fruit of repentance uh, one can certainly call into question the commitment of the faith. Now, sometimes it devolves into this, that you're, uh, as you counsel this individual, they realize they've been fed a bill of goods. If you point out things like Matthew 5.19 or Isaiah 8.20, they realize, not only that, my pastor is, is turning me into a D student, and Christ expects more of me. I'm going to be a workman ashamed. So some people wake up, but others say, because the pastor has given me this license to be a carnal Christian, I'm going to take it. Uh, and Christ can expect nothing of me except I might warm up a pew and sing a few songs and put a little money in the plate. And that's the extent of my Christianity. And very, uh, that's what Dr. Rushdie would call using the faith as fire and life insurance, spare tire religion, where you only use it to get out of hell at the end, but it has no meaning today, which makes you what we call a practical atheist. For all practical purposes, God is not real to you. And that makes you a fool. Uh, Psalm 14.1 informs us. And it's a very dangerous place to be. So we do the best we can to try to continue to be a light. And one way, of course, is to walk according to the law of God. Because when you do, then you are not being enslaved by all the things that those who walk askance from God's law are enslaved by. So that would be an element to a second sub-question. His third sub-question is this. Is it right to tell someone that they crucify Christ daily by their lack of saving faith unto repentance? Now, it's very difficult for you, me, or the other of us to know this for an absolute fact, but you can certainly point out that they are in danger of doing this, and no one can gainsay that. In fact, that gives them the uh, impetus for self-examination. He said, you need to examine yourself. You know, do you really want to have communion and be drinking uh, condemnation unto yourself, you point out? Uh, and that's determined by not that Christ isn't with you, but how you're behaving. Your conduct is, is a, you need to have some level of self-reflection. If you're an adult taking communion, <laughs> there's no escaping Paul's words and, and the warnings because they're to be taken seriously. 
we are not to take lightly the blood of Christ and the crucifixion and the price that was paid for us. And if we act like we are not bought with the price, that we are not our, that we are our own, regardless of what the Bible says, that we belong to Christ and we are not our own. If we claim, well, I'm my own, um, like the poem Invictus, you know, I'm the uh, captain of my destiny, instead of the master of my soul. Master of my soul, captain of my destiny. Get to my soul, master of my destiny. It all doesn't matter which of the mix. It basically is uh, heretical nonsense. And uh, Rashtuni points it out that that's actually a dangerous position to take, the Invictus position. Uh, and usually we see in the so-called so-called carnal Christian, because I don't believe you can be carnal and a Christian simultaneously. Uh, and John Blanchard says, you know, this is a self-deceived position to to take. And and it wasn't without cause that Dr. Bonson spent the uh, bulk of his doctoral dissertation on self-delusion because it is where it's rampant and it uh, hurts us and we need to understand it and how to overcome it but yeah there's a reason that the warning is placed inside the book of hebrews about crucifying christ afresh and it certainly is a card that occasionally you know it was played by the writer of hebrews which I would tell you is Jude, <laughs> for very technical reasons. Uh, and, but a lot of people think it would be Paul or someone else. But when the card is played, it's not to be taken lightly. And that's kind of the point of it. But you don't want to uh, play it prematurely uh, as a stratagem because you want to escalate um, and, and reserve the heavy material for the worst situations. In other words, that's one reason that there's an escalation in Matthew 18. As Matthew Henry says, he says, the goal is to try to protect someone's reputation from public shaming. He said, so we start with the one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, and if we, if we um, restore our brother, hallelujah, that's a fantastic thing. On the other hand, if it doesn't work, then we bring the witnesses. And it's only after that fails that we then have to go to the full exposition uh, to the church at large about the um, prevailing sin that is harmful. So, uh, yeah, it, that card is in the deck. It is part of the weaponry that we can be used and was used by the writer of Hebrews at the appropriate time as a warning, as an exhortation. Uh, but, there's a, but there was a doctrinal point being made there that should stick with us. And so to continue to pointing us to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, is an important thing, and that's what the book of Hebrews is doing. So we're not going to be running amok with other things. Now, remember this, that most of the audience for the book of Hebrews were, in fact, Hebrews, ironically how that worked out. And so their problem was very, very different than antinomianism, uh, per se. Uh, it was putting faith in the flesh, and putting faith in temples, and putting faith in the uh, instruments and the washings and the ablutions that were uh, appointed by Moses and run by Aaron and the Levites, as if that was a be-all, end-all in the final God, God's final word on atonement. So this had to be put away. Nonetheless, sin is dealt with a lot in the book of Hebrews, um, and it brings to light the kind of sins that Israel walked in. So th there's a time and place to bring that warning in. Can I give you an exact time when you say, well, uh, I could say 70 times 7. At that point, go for it, right? And I'd have a biblical basis for it, but in one sense it's kind of arbitrary because perhaps that's way too lenient and we should have been stronger than go 490 times uh, before finally pulling that out. So you can, you can see the issue. 
these are judgment calls. These call for wisdom. These these are not mechanical things like uh, well, how many steps am I allowed to walk with a needle in my pocket if I'm a tailor on the Sabbath. See, the Jews went ahead and tried to put these rules in to say if you walk more than so many steps uh, on the Sabbath with a needle in your pocket, even if you don't know it's there, it's a tool. And if you're a tailor, that's your tool. Um, you can be stoned for a Sabbath violation. This is using the law of God unlawfully. And so we have to be mindful that we don't repeat the same kind of steps. And these, what are these, why did they put these steps together? Because they wanted to uh, have every case covered as opposed to operating on the principle of Scripture uh, so that we are motivated by awareness of what the God, law of God requires and what God expects of us and then for us to be a light unto others. Uh, you can be a very effective uh, censor, censoring people, uh, excoriator of people, and have a terrible walk. It's just the fact. Uh, there's no guarantee that the person who's the best critic of non of um, sinners is in fact not himself a terrible sinner. And uh, all he has to offer is not an example in his own walk, but rather the material out of his mouth, the condemnations. And I think it's more important that we try to recover people best we can and only resort to the heavy machinery when we have to. And there, and, and but you have to, you have to. At that point, you say, okay, uh, I can't be a coward. This calls for girding my loins again, as we say, and, and moving in terms of stronger medicine. And that is a very strong medicine when you bring into play the idea of uh, Christ being crucified afresh. It was the kind of strong medicine that was used during the Reformation against the Mass, and it was appropriate to be used in that case. Uh, of course, they argued about it, Erasmus and Luther at each other's throats, but that's fine because they needed to work that out. It, the case had to be made and, the, and counter-rebutted and counter-counter-rebutted so that everyone knew where they stood on such an important point. Uh, and this had to do with another application of the crucifixion of Christ in that particular uh, Roman Catholic uh, institution. I believe we have exhausted all of these, so let's see, were there any... Uh, Douglas, thanks for that. Shall be good to see you. See, were there any other questions actually popped up, or was everyone spellbound as I was going through the list? Okay, I don't see any questions yet, so we will see what comes of the questions that are coming. Kelly, good to have you here. So I, I found that fascinating when I was looking at this uh, question about deceitfulness, that the word apate, uh, as I mentioned earlier, refers to not being on the path, the beaten path, the right path, that you're being pulled away from a straight path. So uh, that that's the notion or the essence of deceitfulness, of seduction away from the right path is so important as an idea. So what we want to do is continue to exhort one another to be on the right path. That is to stick with what Scripture teaches and not to move across it. And of course, so many people uh, in churches today, in Christendom, have their children in public schools and talk about a wrong path to be on, where I think we need to speak to this uh, winsomely but firmly um, because it's killing us. Uh, and that's why it, it kind of saddens me when, by 1984, when Dr. Rushtuni commented that at the rate that Christian schools were growing, which was like two and a half new schools every day, uh, we, they, every uh, American child would be in a Christian school by such and such a date. It would 
dates already passed. Why? Because the rate of growth of Christian schools slowed down. There was an initial zeal, and then and people got excited about it, but then it took work, it took money, it took commitment, and this kind of had a shaking out effect between those who, and we have this example in Mark 4.19, right? About the seed that grows up quick, but all of a sudden the cares of the world, the uh, deceitfulness of riches, mentioned there in 419, uh, cause the uh, seed not to prosper, it just dies off. And so it, the rate slowed down. And But homeschooling came in to, to, um, con to continue to move forward in terms of giving a biblical alternative for that. So all that to say, uh, the deceitfulness of sin involves us being uh, seduced away from the power by the path and our obligation laid out in Isaiah 58, 12 is this, They that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Uh, thou shalt be called the repair of the breach, the restore of the paths to dwell in. So to pull everyone away from the seductive paths of humanism, of public education, of uh, social welfareism, of um, preemptive war, all these paths that we're on are bad ones, but we want to pull them back to the ancient paths, restoring the paths to dwell in. Uh, and it's not just a path to look at or to write uh, dissertations about. It's a path to dwell in, to walk in the path. This is the way, walk ye in it. And that's what the calling is. That's what Rishtuni was all about, trying to call people to the path, saying, you know, here's this path. It's been all thorned over with weeds, and he cleans it up and makes it look more pristine and ready to walk on. And everyone says, what a curious thing. We're pretty happy over here walking through these humanistic weeds. It's a shame. I saw a question pop up earlier. Two of them, looks like. Joe Smith. When you have a young child who claims Christ, but who continues in sin regardless of discipline and teaching of law and gospel, are there any thoughts from Scripture that may guide or encourage? Well, of course, that's everyone's problem is that not a single one of us is fails the hypocrisy test, where every thought is captive to the obedience of Christ. And we see it easier in others and than ourselves, especially if it's uh, aggravated in the case of a child who they claim Christ, but then the sin nature in them uh, is, has not has yet to be corrected uh, and shaped and formed. Character has to be formed, and that is uh, through um, some repetition processes um, where it's like literally the formation when you put forms up to pour concrete in and it takes the shape of a foundation. So those limitations make the shape. And so too the limitations and the discipline applied to a child are training unto righteousness. So we kind of try to apply the Second uh, Timothy 3.16-3.17 principles to the child. We try to emulate what was achieved with Timothy with his mother and grandmother. Um, and so that's the goal. Uh, and again, I think guiding and encouraging is the right way. Uh, indicating um, uh, we appreciate your zeal. We appreciate your zeal for, for Christ. You're excited about him and you want to claim him as your Savior and your Lord. But for him to be your Lord, you have to treat him like He's your Lord. And so, uh, age-appropriately, you move them in this way. Also, uh, there's some merit at the very youngest ages, I believe, in, for example, training in uh, theology. Dr. Workfield was very big on the shorter uh, Westminster Short Catechism being taught at a very, very young age. He says because uh, uh, those, men, those young boys become short catechism men. And uh, they are moved, in, and it basically shapes their soul and their hearts. And, they, and the most important things are put up front, which is good. It's structured well. If you can't find uh, 
somewhere on the internet there's a discussion of his talking about the uh, shorter catechism. Uh, and of course it has that famous exchange for the very first question, what is the chief end of man? Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he tells an interesting story. He said this was post-Civil um, War, war between the states, and there was a city where essentially things were on fire and it was uh, uh, nothing but a riotous conditions. And a man was walking down the street and he saw another man coming toward him who was walking very purposefully and uh, had a, seemed to be living in a different sphere than all the civil unrest around them. And as they passed, the first man looked back and saw the other man turned around to look at him. And as Warfield relates the story, he says, then that man came up to the first, stuck his finger in his chest and said, and demanded, what's the chief end of man? And the man said, to enjoy God, uh, to, um, uh, enjoy, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And at which point the second man said, I knew you were short of catechism, boy, by the way you held yourself. So there's something about the character of a man that's being shaped by the ultimate categories of God, who makes glorification of God their main thing. That's that's huge. So that'd be one way to go. Um, and of course, the scripture can always be quickened to us and has its part to play. So guidance and encouragement. Of course, uh, Andrea Schwartz has countless books now. I guess you could count them, but they're up there in number and growing uh, on exactly this topic of raising the children the way that they should go. Uh, and so uh, if you don't have them in your library, and I imagine you probably have some, uh, by all means, uh, grab them and enjoy. Uh, they give some guidance, particularly for the young ones. And so that we don't have the kind of grief that sometimes we encounter when they enter the teen age. You know, as Otto Scott and others have pointed out, adolescence is actually a, a, mythal, a mythical thing. Yeah, you should be able to function as an adult by age 12 or 13. Uh, and biblically, that is a reasonable thing to expect, and it happens in homeschooled families quite a lot. Let's see. Jessica Lynn Weber? Long. May you please recommend a good and thorough book on biblical economics with an emphasis on biblical inheritance law. Now, that's interesting, inheritance law. Well, let's see. One of the books that I happen to like on biblical economics is Ian Hodges' book. And uh, let's see. I have it up on the shelf there. And maybe I'll pull it down. Um, see if Ground Control can throw um, a link to it on our, and I don't believe we have it as a free book to read, but certainly that'd be one way to go, particularly because he deals, I think it's, uh, it's not called Your Wealth in God's World, but maybe it is, because I have another book by the very similar title, economic, Christian Economics Book, because um, a lot of Christian Economics books deal primarily with monetary policy, which is good, that's foundational, because the Bible says, you know, can't have abominations in your pocket, you know, he will destroy a nation from the inside out. Uh, that's the gist of uh, Micah 6, famous passage. We, you know, we always quote 6.8, the bumper sticker verse, I say. But it continues going all the way through 6, verse 16, talking about monetary inflation being a fundamental evil that's destroying the nation from the inside out. And its uh, overthrow will be from in the midst of it, from inside. So you don't have to have an attack from the outside to pull a nation apart. It can be destroyed from the inside out and can be destroyed monetarily from the inside out. But once you get the monetary part down, that we are to have just weights and measures, uh, then the rest is now what? What part is to be segregated for the tithe and how is that tithe to be used? 
and then what about my future and my family and how do I uh, capitalize God's kingdom? How do I capitalize the righteous seed? Uh, things like this become important. And I think uh, Ian Hodge's book does a great job of that. So it'd be the first one I would recommend. Uh, we lost a great warrior for the faith when he um, was gathered to his fathers. I think it was just last year. I had the opportunity of working with him in person in um, Florida for a season just before he passed away. Uh, joining us from Chicago. Good place. Thank you for that. I think Edward Budney, perhaps he put that, that story up there. Okay, Making Sense of Your Dollars. So the other book was by a fellow named uh, Christopher Wright, I think it was called Your Wealth in God's World. So Making Sense of Your Dollars. And um, that's not intended necessarily as a um, pun, but there is a book where that does have a, um, a punny title, if you will, which is Peter Allison's book, Dollar Nonsense. Um, and nonsense is spelled N-O-N-C-E-N-T-S. Uh, and it then starts with the premise of what money is, but then he goes beyond that, of course, uh, to, and he's a, a very astute Christian Reconstructionist pastor out of the north side of Houston, uh, whom I hold in the highest regard. So Ian Hodge, also uh, the work by uh, Peter Allison, Dollar Nonsense, which I think that's still available, uh, relatively inexpensive as a book. I hope he is, uh, cons Peter considers um, revising it. It's um, not that's long in the tooth because everything he says is relevant, but some of the things that have happened to the American currency in the meantime, have uh, I don't think you could have imagined that they were going to happen. I mean, in one sense, you could have predicted. But yeah. Oh, good. So then we have the book available in the store. Uh, certainly, you can acquire the book by Hodge. And uh, Dr. Restrini wrote the foreword to it, uh, indicating how much he appreciated someone actually extending these ideas. Now, on a general topic about inheritance, uh, I think you need to simply walk through uh, what Rushdie's discussions um, in Dashing the Heart, and particularly the three CD set uh, uh, economics, Money in the Future, I think it is. Um, it's, uh, it deals with the Christian and their resources and what their purpose is and how they are to realize the capitalizing of God's kingdom over time. Uh, faithfully. How does faithfulness look like in the monetary realm, in terms of fiscal, in terms of your substance? How much of it is set aside for certain things and for yourself? And what does God return to you as a consequence of your faithfulness to him? Uh, one thing that Rushdie said that's very interesting, he says that the motives that really drive a nation properly in scripture are all non-economic motives. They're related to seeing the best for your family uh, and seeing God's kingdom grow. He says whenever a nation uh, starts to worry and operate in terms of economic motives versus non-economic ones, it's the downfall of the nation because now love of money is the root of its conduct of all its decision-making power. And that's a dangerous thing to have. Let's see. And I think we've, I think we've answered those two questions. Um, there was a book by E.L. Hebden Taylor on uh, bank, money and banking. It's out of print, regrettably, but it's one of the best books on that topic. And if you're able to find a copy uh, online used, get it. It's highly recommended. Um, also, Dr. Gary North certainly has written a large amount of material on economics. In fact, it's got an economic commentary on the Bible. Uh, and that's unusual and important to have. And so, in many regards, uh, he's 
delivers some important insights that you won't find elsewhere and I think they're important and can be uh, and I believe most of these are available online for free he makes it available to be able to, to see all the parts that he put together and so the notion that the Bible doesn't speak to economics he's dedicated his uh, intellectual life to putting that notion to at naught setting it at naught and, and disproving it in fact yes the Bible speaks to it a lot uh, and continuously and profoundly and in a world-shaping way. So you always can go to Dr. North's uh, missive on this this topic. Uh, and of course he gets into the topics of uh, inheritance as well. I don't, they don't necessarily always on every point agree with Dr. Rashtuni. North and Dr. Rashtuni sometimes were on opposite sides of a question. And sometimes North and Bonson and Bonson and Rashtuni were on opposite sides of a question. So we take the combined input and we synthesize the best of the arguments. That's what you do. All right, so ground control. What are we doing on time-wise? I can't tell because it's one of those days when Facebook refuses to put the clock up at the top of my uh, my feed. There goes economics, money, and hope. That's it. And that third tape is so powerful, which concludes what's, what's the Christian to do. It's the, the great hope, the great potential. Nine minutes. Okay. So the, the point is that the, the Christian can conquer through economics. One thing I was so, I was so struck by, I was in a Q&A, live Q&A at an event for Peter Allison, who I referenced his book, Dollar Nonsense. And, when, and the question is, what can we do to make a concrete difference in, in the monetary realm, in the economic realm? And he says, you can get out of debt. Because every single, uh, when you have debt, it's turned into cash. It's monetized by the fractional reserve system here. And you can pull all that excess money that's circulating down by getting out of debt. So apart from paying people in silver and gold, uh, the mere fact that you're driving your debt down to zero is destroying the false currency because if currency is based on debt, and American currency is, by getting out of debt and, and Christians doing the same thing, you're collapsing that system and reverse it, reverting it back to the legitimate forms of um, monetary exchange. Excuse me. Let's see here. Zachary asks, and it fits, the whole question fits in the screen. I love that. Because adolescence is a myth, what is the criterion for adulthood? What if someone's mind and heart has developed to the point where they could hold their own in a workplace, etc., at age eight? Or someone is an exceptionally slow learner and is very stubborn, acting like a child at adult age? Well, I've certainly seen the latter a lot, unfortunately, um, where uh, failure to launch occurs. Everyone by now in America is familiar with the story of the... Uh, of the 30-plus-old guy who sued his parents to be able to stay in his house longer because uh, he felt he should have a free ride. Uh, and so we all shake our heads at that. But the fact is, in if everyone believes that the world owes you a living, then, of course, that's the logical conclusion. That's the where you end up along this chain of thought that is compelling us today in, in these respects. So... Um, Let's talk about the other case. We uh, hear a lot about um, folks in the 1700s who started going to Harvard or Yale at age 11 uh, and finishing their doctorates and getting their pastorates at age 14 or 15, uh, whatever the case may be. It's certainly that we have lowered expectations now. And one of the results of that lower expectations, as uh, Otto Scott talks about in his article, The Myth of Adolescence, is it opens up this wide period between presumed adulthood which and uh, actual 
uh, time when we should call someone on the carpet. See, under uh, the Jewish um, notions of the Hebrew nation, uh, they required literacy, and someone did, the, the whole point of the bar mitzvah principle uh, to be a son of the covenant was that uh, you were able to stand, move forth in, as an adult, as an individual, uh, uh, mature, ready to take on the obligations of, uh, of an adult in the nation. And we've grown away from that, so now we say, well, you can buy cigarettes at age 18, and you can buy alcohol at 21, and you can become president at 35. And, all these material uh, things that are supposedly uh, barriers for immaturity, but your immaturity can outrace and continue to grow faster than our barriers are. So finally, we're going to say the president has to be 80 years old, and uh, you can't smoke a cigarette until you're 30 years old, and then soon you can't have children until you're 50. <laughs> you can't find someone mature enough. So the point is, you're trying to manipulate the environment to create your uh, utopia and it doesn't come from external manipulation, it comes from internal. Uh, it comes from the heart of the man, and that's resolved where God and the, and the soul of man and the spirit of God, that interface is what matters, and interfaces on the word of God, where we get to know the will of God and what he intends for us, what he requires of us. And those things coming into play can shape and mature someone very, very quickly. I think nobody had a faster education than young Samuel. When he's given instructions to inform Eli that Eli's days in the land were going to be short, <laughs> and that's a lot to ask of a young man to tell him you need to tell your master who's instructed you he's going to die very soon for faithlessness. That's exactly what happened. So uh, I'm not bothered by when we have uh, young children doing well, and I don't like the notion of arbitrary times. But there's a sense in which the scripture does apply just exactly such an what appears to us arbitrary warfare. You are not to uh, go into war uh, unless you're 20 years old and up. And America has said, no, at this point, we're going to treat the 18-year-olds and up as adults, even though the Bible forbids it. And so we send them into war, and then we wonder why God doesn't bless our wars, uh, when in fact we throw God's law and trample it underfoot. So uh, at that point, we're tricking someone who is not to be put in the front lines of a battle, and we put them there anyway. So there's a collision between what man expects, what man requires, what man thinks is culturally appropriate, and what God's liberty permits, and what God's law forbids. You know, in this case, God's law forbids, a, there's a certain age limit uh, for war, there's a certain age limit for being serving as a um, Levitical priest. But nonetheless, even then, we see this in uh, Second Chronicles 25, um, Verses, effectively uh, verse 8, but going through that whole passage, it talks about the musicians, the Levitical musicians. It said the children and the adults were mixed together, the scholar with the masters, and they all learned together, and the children were under the hands of the father for training. So at that point, we see that they could work together despite the age differences. And the biggest one world schoolhouse was the Levites Music School, and it was a stunning thing for them to be able to coordinate and unify and, and glorify God in such a way that their worship ended up with the Shekinah glory coming down in the midst of them. And uh, the best we can do is artificial fog. Let's see what else we got. Uh, Joe Smith. Why are silver and gold not also fiat currency since a piece of bread could buy a bag of gold? No matter the currency or a given transaction is based on agreed upon value. Well, the point about silver and gold, um, it's fiat means that it's by 
command of the government, and this entails what's known as a legal tender law. And this is where the founder of the dictionary, um, Noah Webster, comes in. He declared that the legal tender laws, which were being debated in Congress, were the devil in the flesh because they would force you to accept something as money that you didn't want to accept. But it says, you know, this note is legal tender for all notes, private and public. So it forces you to accept the dollar bill, even though it's a fluctuating weight and measure and therefore an abomination. So at least with the gold and silver, uh, those are uh, legal tender, but it, you're not required to accept them. You can say, I want to be paid in bananas. Or I want to be paid in this, that. I want to barter instead. These are all legitimate options. One can force you to do it. But in, in, with respect to paying the government, if you owe the government something, say they have an excise or an impound, uh, they will accept, and you and they cannot refuse if you pay them in silver or gold. So, uh, at, at one point when they created their own pennies, it was in principle uh, impossible for them to refuse you paying a ten thousand uh, dollar tax bill in pennies dragged out in wheelbarrows because, of course, they said it's legal tender, so they have to take it. Uh, and of course, they fight that because it's too much trouble. We don't want it. We want you to take it to the bank. Nope, you don't have to. So the courts now are trying to struggle with the ocean of fiat, because fiat means a declaration. This is X. This is Y. And so it's really the will of men declaring the fiat, as opposed to God making an observation that the gold is good, and the gold of Ophir is good. Uh, these are just weights and measures, uh, a just ephah, a just bath. These measurements are all fair, and so you are not trying to steal from one another. You're not defrauding one another. That notion of defrauding is a big deal to God. And so, uh, yes, it's possible that silver and gold, when they have hit a big gold reserve, you know, and all of a sudden the amount of gold in the world increases. Technically, the money supply has increased, and, and that means there's been a mild inflation. Uh, but that also happens, you have a deflation effect occurring because even if you had a totally stable money supply, as Dr. North points out, aggregate production improves as technology advances, which means it becomes cheaper and cheaper to make an iPhone, say. So iPhone prices drop because it's, it's we, our ability to make them efficiently improves. So he says what should happen if you have a static money supply is that prices should be dropping. If you have a biblical money supply, Prices should be slowly dropping, a mild deflation over time. If the prices are staying the same, that means someone's jacking up the uh, amount of the currency. There's some fraud, and it's government-endorsed fraud that's going on in the background. And why does the government do this? Because it's a way for them to impose a tax without having to levy the uh, TAX word, use the T word to do it. It's done secretively behind the scenes. Zachary asks, also, do you think age-based laws like marriage, age, child labor laws, drinking age, age of consent, driving age, etc., should be removed? They seem to miss the root issues and seem status to me. So what I think I'm going to do with Zachary is I'm going to ask him what his age is, then I'm going to impose an age limit for people who can ask questions on these Q&As. And it's going to be just a little bit higher than his age. <laughs> That's a good point. You know, Again, these are all attempts to manipulate and create a result in society through law. And... Uh, where it is simply an extension or extrapolation of biblical law, there may be some benefit to it culturally. Uh, but if it is uh, prohibiting or, or, or curtailing biblical liberties, that is a bad thing, inherently bad thing. There you're framing mischief using law. And most people don't put laws in place simply uh, with the intent of creating evil with the law. It's just that they believe that their way is better than God's way, and therefore God's law is deficient. We're going to go ahead and legislate and do it our way. And, of course, this is the great slide to hell. Uh, let's see. 
Yes, uh, indeed. Send your questions in advance to ask.calcedon.calcedon.edu. We uh, got that notice out to um, um, Rory Fry just this morning and got the question in. So otherwise we wouldn't have had his question about um, publishing a book that's in the public domain. And there we have it. So we're going to wrap it up. Are we done, uh, Ground Control? Sounds like I think we filled those last nine minutes quite nicely. And Ground Control will tell, tell me momentarily. And then we'll have a very graceful dismount. And we'll push this out. Yep, we're good. Thumbs up. We'll see everyone next week. And again, if you haven't signed up for the Book of the Month Club, uh, get your slot. And uh, if you miss it, uh, a week or two afterward, the whole thing will also be posted to calcedon.edu. Continue to support us. Our job is to uh, make sure that uh, there's a voice for the law of God that is uh, faithful, not compromised, and balanced in terms of bringing every jot and tittle to bear in every question. And if we fall short of that, we certainly go back the next week and do better. Blessings to all. We'll see you all next week. God bless. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.